name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Ethos. And uh, just really, I'm excited and really humbled uh, to be up here and walking through the particular text that we're in tonight. We're in, it's a long chunk of scripture that we're going to be walking through uh, tonight. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25, all the way to chapter 5, verse 7. Ephesians 4, 25, all the way to 5. Verse 7. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 816. I invite you to go ahead and turn there. If you're using one of our Bibles, page 816. Uh, before we just jump into the text, I always like to give a little bit of a recap about where we are. So we've been uh, in the book of Ephesians now for a couple months. And uh, just kind of remember the first three chapters of this letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus, and he spends three chapters of this letter just speaking identity over these Christians in Ephesus. And so like, he keeps saying to them, like, hey, you have been adopted into the family of God. You have been made children of God. You are heirs of God's kingdom. In other words, hey, every single resource of the kingdom of heaven is yours in Jesus. You are to inherit that. He says, you've been raised to life with Jesus. You've been seated with Jesus. He said, hey, you've been made into one humanity and all the things that used to divide you up no longer divide you, but through Jesus, you've been brought together into one humanity. And so for three chapters, Paul is like reminding the Ephesian Christians of their identity. And that's the message to us in Ephesians 1 through 3. This is who we are in Jesus. It's this amazingly good news. And then in chapter four, he begins by saying, hey, so now that we know who we are, let's live a life worthy of that calling. And he starts by talking about the importance of unity. You guys remember that? He says, hey, unity is not just this idea. It's a necessity for the people of God. And throughout the, 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 the fourth chapter of Ephesians, he's talking about this idea of unity. And he says, hey, you've been given different gifts. Like in one body, you've been given different gifts and those gifts are to be used to bring the body together to promote the unity of Christ's body and Christ's family to grow into all that Christ has for us. And then last week, Dave got up and he started talking with us about this idea in chapter four where Paul starts saying, hey, because this is who you are, you've got to start thinking in a new way. He says, we've got to take off the old way of thinking and put on the new way of thinking so that we can slide in completely to this identity that's been given to us in Jesus. And in today's text, in Ephesians 4, starting verse 25, Paul is going to start describing some of the practicals, the real practical elements of what it looks like for us to live as the united community of Christ. And we're going to see this picture of, of a community that is marked by unity, but also discipline and, and self-sacrifice. And I just want to say this out front, like this text that we're going to read, this text and other texts like it in the New Testament, when they're, when they're read out of context, I think they often contribute to this perception of Christianity as, as just this religion where you've got to follow all the rules in order to get God to like you. And I just want to diffuse that right out front. Like that is not what we're reading We've spent three chapters looking at, hey, this is who you are. You haven't earned it. It's been given to you by grace. Nothing that we're going to read tonight is going to argue with your identity in Jesus. But Paul is going to talk about some of the practicals of what it looks like to live in community. And as I was reading it this week, I was reminded of, um, 
I was reminded of my, my kids' first uh, adventure into the realm of organized sports. So last fall, I have, I have three kids. My oldest two are five and seven now. They're both boys, and they were four and six in the fall. And so we signed them up for this basketball league. And it was, a, it was for ages four to six, so they got to be in the same team, which is pretty awesome. So we show up. I remember the first practice we show up to. It became immediately clear to me that none of these four to six-year-olds have ever touched a basketball. So they're like running around like cats on the basketball court. I mean, they're more than playing dodgeball, throwing the ball, running after each other. I mean, it's just pure pandemonium. And this good-hearted, well-intentioned coach who played collegiate basketball but has never coached a four to six-year-old who's never touched a basketball before, walks into the room, and you can see the look of panic in his face as he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And so all of a sudden, he's looking at all the kids, and he says, hey, I'm going to blow this whistle, and I want to see some baseline sprints. And he blows the whistle, and all the kids just kind of look at him like, well, what's a baseline? Like, what is a sprint? What is it you're asking us to do? And I just thought, this is going to be a hilarious season. Like, the rest of the season, this is what we're going to get to watch at every game. I assumed that every team would look like this team that my kids were playing on. And then we showed up to our first game. And we're in the gym and there's uh, Amy and I, my wife are there trying to like get our kids organized and get on the bench to wait for the game to start. And they're like running around climbing the, bas- the backboard, like no joke, climbing the pole for the, the basketball goal. And all of a sudden the door at the other of the gym opens and this coach walks in and I'm not kidding you. He walks in, he's got this single file line of four to six year olds behind him. And they just come walking into the gym. They hit the edge of the court and they all turn at the same time and walk over to their bench. They all sit down and you, like at the same time. I'm like, what in the world? What has this guy done to these kids? And then I watch him, he gets out of the court. So at this age, the coach is on the court with the kids. And all throughout play, every time the ball would come to their end of the court, this coach would say things like, Texas or Alabama. And he was yelling out plays. <laughs> These four to six-year-olds are like getting in position. And when they didn't make it to their spot, the coach would like come over and graciously show them where to stand. It was amazing. It was like a well-oiled machine. I had no idea you could get a four to six-year-old to play basketball that way. And at first I was tempted to think this guy's got to be like a total Nazi at practice. I mean, I bet he is like the most heavy-handed coach. And then I got a glimpse of that after the game in the lobby, the game, which they won, by the way, obviously. They won every game. They were the champions. They were amazing. At the end, in the lobby, I see this coach and he's high-fiving his kids and they're hugging him and they're having so much fun. And what I realized was that this coach He had created this amazing community of discipline and teamwork, which all, in all honesty, required some self-sacrifice on the part of these team members. They had to realize that this game was not about them, but was about their team. And you know, nobody is going to look at that coach and say, man, you've just ruined the game of basketball for these kids, putting all these rules on them. Now everybody looks at this guy and they say, man, by creating this environment of teamwork and self-sacrifice, You haven't ruined the game. You have taught them how to enjoy the game to the fullest of what it was meant to be enjoyed. Those kids understood basketball. I'm not sure if my kids still understand it yet, to be honest. You see, today's text is not a text about following rules, but about how the church gets to become this radically different community that is marked by unity and self-discipline and sacrificial love. And we're going to approach this text a little bit differently. Instead of starting at the beginning and working through, we're going to start right in the middle because here's what I believe. I think this text is really two different parts that are held together by this essential glue in the middle. I want you to imagine, you know, like an Oreo cookie, right? You got two cookies with this 
wonderful sweet icing filling in the middle that holds them both together. And how do you eat an Oreo? You twist it open and you start with the icing, right? That's the way you do it. So that's why we're going to start with this text tonight. We're going to start right in the middle, looking at the glue that holds this text together and helps it all make sense. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 1 and 2. This is what Paul writes. He says, follow God's example. Some of your Bibles might say, be imitators of God. And I actually like that language a whole lot better. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So right here in the middle of this text that we're reading, I think Paul is giving us an insight into what the rest of this text means. He's going to give us this reminder of our identity, and he's going to give us a clarion call for why we live the way that we live in the community of Christ. So he starts with identity. He says, listen, I I want to urge you to imitate God as what? As dearly loved children. I think the emphasis in this verse is more on the identity of us as dearly loved children than it is on this command to imitate God. Because if you've ever been around a kid that knows they are dearly loved by their parent, that imitation just flows right out of them. It's what they long to do. I was telling you, I've got three kids. You know, my youngest is my my sweet Dahlia Elise. She's 14 months old and everything that she does, she tries to imitate my wife and I. I mean, it is crazy at 14 months old. Like when we're brushing our teeth, she is going to stick something in her mouth. We had to give her a little toothbrush to keep her from sticking mascara in her mouth, you know, because she wanted to brush her teeth just like me and my wife are brushing our teeth. If I start sweeping the kitchen, she has a little broom. She gets it out and she starts pushing it around the kitchen, you know, trying to copy me and my wife. When, when I empty the dishwasher, she comes over and starts pulling silver out and putting it on the floor. Not helpful at all, but it's so cute because she's just imitating, wanting to be like her mom and her dad. And it doesn't stop with, with an infant or a toddler. I see this in my boys all the time. Just two weeks ago, I'm I was in my room doing some push-ups and some pull-ups, you know, really working on my manly physique and maintaining that. And my, my boys walk in and immediately they see me on the ground doing push-ups and they drop down and they just start trying to crank out push-ups. I didn't say, boys, get down and give me 20. No, they just, they saw me doing it and they wanted to do it. They wanted to imitate. And then they, they stood up and they started flexing in the mirror, you know, not because I do that. It's because my wife does that. My wife <laughs> loves to look at herself in the mirror and flex her muscles so they're imitating her there. But this, this idea is that kids long to imitate their parents. It just flows out of who they are. And what Paul is saying to us in Ephesians 5, 1, he's saying, listen, I want you to remember all that God has done for you, the identity he's given you as his child. And as a dearly loved child, will you imitate him just as a child longs to imitate their parent? He reminds us of our identity. And then he goes on and he gives this call of how we walk as followers of Jesus. And I believe the second part is really the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He says, listen, I want you to imitate God as dearly loved children. What does he say? He says, walk in the way of love. It's this this invitation to walk in the way of love. And he doesn't leave it vague so we can interpret what love means. Look, he says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. And what? Gave. The love of Jesus is exemplified in this word gave because the backbone of Christian community is this picture of people that live for the purpose of giving, not ultimately just for receiving. 
He's saying, look, if you wanna live in the community the way that, that Christ longs for you to, you gotta remember your identity and you've gotta walk in the way of sacrificial love that we were meant to be a people that were marked by giving, giving of ourselves, giving of our time, giving of our resources, giving of forgiveness, giving of love, giving of mercy, giving of compassion, but we are a community that is marked by giving. You see, Christianity is a life of sacrificial love that is marked by how much we can give, not by our constantly trying to receive or consume. And this is the glue that is gonna hold together the whole text that we're in this morning. Remember who you are and walk in the way of sacrificial love. And on either side of this glue, Paul is gonna give us something about what it means to live life with one another. On the front side of the glue, Paul is going to talk about what it looks like for us to do this together as a body to do this together as the family of Jesus. And then on the back side of that glue, he's going to warn us of some things that will threaten this way of life from the outside. So let's look at what he says on the front side. Flip back to chapter four, starting in verse 25. This is what Paul writes. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. And so he's continuing the language we looked at last week of putting off one way of thinking and putting on another. He says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry because that will give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with your own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So in this section, I think Paul is talking about the way that we do life together in a way that is marked by sacrificial love as dearly loved children. And first, he's going to start by looking at some external signs of walking in the way of love. And then he's going to look at some internal signs of walking in the way of love. And the external signs that we are walking in the way of love, it begins with our words. This is what Paul starts with. He says, hey, I want you to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Now, this is not just a command to stop lying. Paul's doing so much more than that here. This goes beyond stop lying. He says, I want you to, to put off falsehood, stop lying, and stop making things up about each other. But I, instead, I want you to speak truth, speak life, speak good things, speak identity over one another. He unpacks it further in verse 29. He says, you know, the things that come out of your mouth should be useful for building others up according to their needs. You know that when we gather, when we come into this place, we come with something to give. Do you know that right now there are men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ sitting all around you, some of whom really need to hear some words of encouragement. They need to hear these words of identity that Paul has been speaking in Ephesians. They need to hear, hey, I love you and I'm glad you're in our family. They need to hear, hey, you have a role and a gift that you bring to our family, and I love when you live out of that gift. They need to hear, hey, it doesn't matter that you messed up this past week. It doesn't matter what you did. The grace of God is for you. It is for you. It is here today. 
And so Paul says, listen, one of the ways that we see the external signs of walking in the way of love is the way that we use our words. And if you've ever been around someone who does this, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think about uh, my good friend and brother in Christ, Brent Baldwin. Brent attends the 11 a.m. here at the cannery. And man, Brent is such an amazing encourager. Like every time I spend time with Brent, I know that I am gonna walk away just feeling encouraged in the Lord because he longs and he seeks to speak truth into my life. And I'm not just talking about fluff. Like he doesn't just try to puff me up. I mean, Brent will speak challenging words to me as well. But because of the way he positions and postures himself with me, I always know that Brent's words are meant for my good to build me up. And so Paul says, will you leverage your words for the sake of the community so that we can walk as dearly loved children in the way of sacrificial love? He goes beyond words and he starts to talk about work. And so you see what he talks about with our work. He says, hey, anyone who is stealing needs to stop stealing. This gives us some insight into what the community in Ephesus was like, right? Like some people were stealing from one another. And he says, hey, if you're stealing, I want you to stop stealing. But again, this goes far beyond stopping stealing. I love the way Paul talks about work. You see, our culture says work is something that you do so that you can provide for yourself. But look at the way Paul talks about work. He says, work is something that you do so that you have something to give. He says, work, that you may have something to share with those in need. What a radical shift of a way of thinking about work. We don't go to work so that we can gather as much things to ourselves as we want. No, we work so that when we come into the body of Jesus, when there are needs, we have something to give and something to offer because there's always going to be need. There are going to be people that are fighting illnesses that can't afford to go to work. There are going to be people that become widowed or widowers and there are going to be orphans that need cared for. There are going to be people that lose their job. There are going to be situations where there are needs within our family. And what Paul is saying is, hey, will you go to work so that you have something to give? And so he says, hey, here's some external signs of imitating God and walking in the way of sacrificial love, the way that we use our words and the way that we leverage our work for the sake of the body. And Paul is also gonna talk about the internal signs of walking in the way of love. He says, hey, I, I want you to look in, in verse 31. He says, I want you to get rid of all bitterness and resentment. I want you to get rid of anger and malice and Rage. I want you to get rid of these grudges that you're holding on to. You see, when we, when we cling to these kind of attitudes of bitterness and resentment and rage and anger and grudges, when we cling to that, two different things happen. One, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that lives in us, that makes us children of God. And the Holy Spirit is one who is one with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit lives this life of radical giving, just like Jesus. And yet when we cling to resentment and we hold back forgiveness, we grieve the very spirit that we've been sealed with that gives us this amazing identity. And the second thing that happens is that Paul says we give the devil a foothold in our life. You know, verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry and don't give the devil a foothold. What he's saying is, listen, when you're angry at someone, don't let that mark the way you live your life. Don't end your day with anger at someone. Because what Christ longs for is unity in the body. He longs for unity in his church. 
And when we let anger and resentment simmer in our heart, we're giving the devil. We have a very real enemy who would love to shatter the unity that Christ is working so hard for in his body. And when we hold on to resentments with one another, the enemy comes in and he digs his toe in and he tries to get a foothold to shatter the unity that is there. You know, I worked as a therapist for several years before I was a pastor and I had a lot of clients in my office who were struggling with and dealing with different levels of guilt and shame. And oftentimes, if they were Christians, the way they would say it to me was this, that they were struggling with guilt, they were struggling with accepting and believing that they were really forgiven by God, and so they felt racked with guilt. And so I would spend sessions with them, just unpacking, trying to find the root of where some of this guilt was coming from. And more often than not, what we discovered as we began to dig into their guilt is that there was someone in their life that they needed to forgive. You see, sometimes when we boil Christianity down to an individual pursuit of God, then it's easy for it to become just about me receiving something from God. In other words, it's about me receiving forgiveness from God. And here's what God says, hear me clearly on this. God says, hey, I have all the forgiveness and grace in the world to extend to you. And I've done it in Jesus and I will continue to do it. But then he looks at us and he says, hey, as my dearly beloved child, Will you imitate me? And will you extend and give the same kind of forgiveness to the people that hurt you? You see, we imitate and walk in the way of sacrificial love by leveraging our words for the sake of our family. We we imitate God and walk in the way of love by leveraging our work, not for our own gain, but for the benefit of the community. We imitate God and we walk in the way of sacrificial love by the giving of compassion and forgiveness and mercy just like we received from God. I think this is the first part of what Paul is leading up to, this amazing glue of imitating him and walking in the way of love. And I'll I'll be really honest, it was very tempting to stop right here in the text. Because I I really do, I think most people could hear the message that we've said so far, and most people could get on board with that. I I think believers, non-believers, faith, no faith, no matter what, people could say, hey, I like this idea of a community that is dedicated to living out of love for one another. Man, I really like that, and I'm on board with that, and this is what Christ calls us to. But you see, Paul doesn't stop there. Paul is going to keep writing in his letter, in the second part. And I think he's going to connect the glue to this second portion of his writing and he's going to say, hey, listen, there's something else you need to know that threatens the unity of the family and he's going to give us this warning of something that threatens us from the outside of our family. Look at what he says, chapter five, verse three. He says, but, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. I think what Paul is doing here is he's gonna show us how sexual immorality and impurity and greed, they are the antithesis of what it means to imitate God and walk in the way of sacrificial love. That may sound like a really big claim. How are sexual immorality and impurity and greed the antithesis of imitating God and walking in the way of love? And I think Paul gives us some insight onto why these are so detrimental to the life of the family of Christ. Look what he says in verse five. He says, for of this you can be sure, 
No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. We'll come back to that phrase. He says, none of these people has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, hear me on this really quickly. Paul has just spent three chapters of his letter, the first half of this letter that he's writing, assuring the Ephesian Christians that they are heirs of the kingdom, that they will inherit the kingdom because of Jesus. So what we need to notice is what Paul, he is not now suddenly changing his mind. You know what, I said that earlier, but I changed my mind. You know what, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. This is not going to happen for you because of this is the way. That's not what Paul's doing here. Now, Paul is comparing and contrasting those who've been brought into the family of God and those who have not. You remember last week we looked at this. He talked about the ignorance and those that don't know about the way of Jesus. And ignorance is not a bad word. It just means they don't know. Literally, they don't know. They haven't learned it yet. Their hearts have not been awakened and illuminated to the ways of Jesus. And so he's saying, listen, of course, people who don't know about this family of Christ, of course, they live with sexual immorality and impurity and greed because they don't know there's another way. And these things are improper for God's holy people. They threaten to destroy the unity that Christ is working to maintain. I think he gives us another clear picture of helping understand why they are a threat. He says, the people that are immoral, impure, or greedy, he calls them idolaters. What does this mean? You know, an idolater is simply someone who worships something other than the one true God. Someone who worships an idol. You know, when we read in the Old Testament, we see people bowing down to like golden statues and we kind of go, oh yeah, that's idolatry. I understand that because they have this statue they're worshiping. And and we don't see that as much in our culture. And I think what Paul is going to say here is, hey, idolatry doesn't just happen with little statues. He's going to say idolatry can happen with greed and immorality and impurity. And here's how it works. I'll start with greed. Why does he call the greedy person an idolater? First of all, it's important to understand Paul is not saying the rich person. I think some people read this and they go, oh yeah, rich people. No, 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 no. no. You can be poor or rich or middle class and still be a greedy person. What Paul is describing as greedy is the one whose life is oriented around acquiring and consuming more material stuff for themselves. Stuff that seems like it's going to satisfy the longing of their soul and so they take more and more and it becomes more and more about them and what they have. You see, they have a throne in their life and what is seated on that throne is their desire for more things. And what they begin to worship is their satisfaction of getting the things that they need. See, the greedy person is an idolater because the greedy person worships stuff and more stuff for themselves. You know, each week here at Ethos, we get up here at the end and we, we invite you to give joyfully and generously. And I, I want you to know, we don't do that for the financial stability of Ethos Church. We're not worried about that. Like, man, God has every resource in heaven. He doesn't need your dollars. So why do we do it? It's because one of the joys of living in the community of Christ is becoming a person who is not postured to always take and receive, but to give. You see, this is not about our financial stability, but it's about the orientation of our hearts towards one another and towards Christ over and above material things. And so he calls the greedy person an idolater and he says, listen, that will threaten the unity in the body because ultimately it becomes about that person. It becomes about self-centeredness. 
and not about the good of the family. And it threatens to destroy the unity that Christ has worked to create. Paul also says the sexually immoral and the impure person is an idolater. Now, let's, let's just talk about this. Um, I think this phrase, sexual immorality and impurity, these phrases kind of together serve as a catch-all for any type of behavior or anyone whose behavior and choices are dictated by a commitment to satisfying their natural lusts and sexual desires. So what Paul is saying is, listen, the sexually immoral and the impure, they are idolaters as well, but they are not bent on acquiring material things. No, what they're bent on is satisfying the natural cravings and lusts of their flesh, and that becomes the thing they chase after more than anything else. And I, w- I want to just take a minute, let's just talk a little bit about sexual immorality. Like, what in the world is going on? Why is that such a big deal? The first thing we need to know is this, is that Sexual intimacy and sex, it was God's idea. (laughs) Like God dreamt that up. Like God thought, man, I I know what I'm going to do for a man and a woman. It's this beautiful picture of sexual intimacy. You read Genesis 2. And at the end of Genesis 2, you have Adam and you have Eve. And it says, man, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. You see, sexual intimacy was this beautiful idea of God for the way that a man and a woman would come together and become one. It was this deep, beautiful, beautiful act that was spiritual and physical and emotional. And I love what you see at the end of Genesis 2. It says, Adam and Eve were there together and they were naked and they had no shame. I think this feels so foreign to us sometimes. I mean, I'm up here talking about nakedness and sexuality and probably some of us are a little bit like, oh, what is going on right now? Like, what are we talking about? And what God's intention was is no, there's no shame in sexuality. There's no shame in sexual intimacy. It was God's idea. And as the author and creator of sex, I think he has some idea of how it works best. And so he said, is this place where a man and a woman become one flesh. You see, when a man and a woman are deeply committed to one another in the context of covenant or marriage, then no longer is sexual desire just about me and what I want, but no, it becomes about us. It becomes about a husband trying to satisfy the desires of his wife, not just seek after his own desires, and about a wife seeking to satisfy the desires of her husband, not just chasing after her own desires. There's a big difference between sexual intimacy and sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is bent on having my needs met, my desires satisfied, my cravings taken care of. And I wanna wanna just speak plainly about this for a minute because I have so many conversations about this on a regular basis. And I believe that there are an alarming number of people within our church who are having sex with people that are not their spouses, people they are not married to. And I've had so many conversations. People say, but Aaron, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I go to church regularly. I give. I, I serve the poor, you know. Like, I, I do all those things on the front end of this text. I use my words to build up. Like, I am a good person. Why does it matter what I do with my sexuality so much? And then I'll have others that say, you know, I, I, I love my girlfriend. I love my boyfriend. And I, I plan on marrying them one day. 
And I think what I would say is, hey, if you plan on marrying them, if you plan, then if you want to have sex with them, you need to marry them. And of course, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek because I think we all know, and I want you to hear this, like marriage is no good to be used to fix a sin problem. It's a terrible idea. But the reality is, is that some of us, we really want the good of a sexual relationship without the sacrifice that is required by a lifelong covenant commitment. You see, a husband and wife, when they come together in marriage, they're saying, hey, for the rest of my life, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. They say that to one another. And it takes this beautiful act of sexual intimacy and makes it not just a selfish desire, but this place where we see a picture of Christ in the church. Did you know that sexual intimacy is a picture of Jesus in the church? We're gonna talk about that a lot in like two weeks as we go on Ephesians 5. But marriage is this beautiful place where we see how Jesus loves the church. Did you know your sexual intimacy is connected to the way that you imitate your father and the way that you walk in the way of sacrificial love? I don't want to just pick on those who are unmarried. I'm not, I know immorality, sexual immorality, it, it comes to all of us in different ways, right? It's like, I also know that there are an alarming number of people in our church who are regularly exposing themselves to pornography. And the lie that it, that it puts out that sex is all about conquest or attaining my own pleasure at the expense of another person. And the message here is, hey, Paul says, don't let a hint of sexual immorality because see, sexual immorality threatens the very foundation of the unity that Christ has worked towards for us because it puts you in a position of only trying to meet your own needs. I think there are a number of married couples in our church who are not cultivating the sexual intimacy that God has for them that is built around the giving of oneself to another, but instead they live only in the fantasy of everything that they want to receive and they harbor bitterness towards their spouse because they're not giving it. And all of these threaten to put us in a position of wanting to satisfy our own needs over giving. The backbone of the Christian community is about giving. You see, sex was meant to be the giving of oneself to another for the sake of the other's need, not the satisfying of my own needs by another. So Paul says, this is the way of idolatry. By seeking to have my needs met all the time, he says, no, instead we are called to steward our sexuality in a way that imitates God in his radical selfless giving. This is what we do with our sexuality. And so Paul is saying, look, you've been invited to be imitators as dearly loved children walking in the way of sacrificial love. Leverage your words for each other. Leverage your work for each other. Like give forgiveness and compassion. And he says, but watch out because don't let a hint, a hint of that sexual immorality come in. Because here's the thing. He's going to go on and say this in verse 8, in verse 10. I mean, he says, listen, I want you to find out what pleases the Lord find out what pleases the Lord. In verse six, he says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words because the reality is there are a plethora of lies in our culture about how your sexuality is meant to be used, about how your material resources are meant to be used. And Paul says, don't be deceived by these empty words. Don't be deceived by the lie that says, hey, you should try to get all that you can. You should try to consume all that you can. This is about you and you making sure that you're happy. If you don't take care of yourself, then no one else will. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. See, Christ has given us a community that is meant to be bent on taking care of one another's needs. 
It's not always about just looking out for number one. This is the way of God's family. Because when we have attitudes of selfless, sacrificial love, then we cultivate the unity that Christ longs to see amongst us. How do we wrap this up? And there's a lot that that we've said, and I think Paul is going to go on in in a really good way. In verse 8, he says, listen, you know, once you were darkness, again, he's affirming their identity. He says, listen, once you were darkness, but that's not who you are anymore. You're light in the world. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. This is the invitation for us. that We are invited to find out what pleases our Father and to be children who imitate him. And I just, I know that this text is probably striking all of us in very different ways. And so I want to give some very specific invitations to all of us in different ways, all right? So here's the thing. I I think there's probably some of us who are feeling convicted somewhat by some of this text. And I want to point out the difference in conviction and condemnation. See, the enemy shows up and he longs to condemn. The the thief, the enemy, Satan, he comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And if you're feeling convicted right now, don't let the enemy condemn you because your identity is in Jesus. It is secure. But if the Spirit is convicting you, pay attention to that. Because the Spirit convicts to bring life. The Spirit convicts so that we will turn to Jesus and see the grace in his eyes. If you're being convicted this morning on any part of what we've looked at in this text, my encouragement and my invitation to you is just just confess that. Confess it to someone you came with. Confess it to someone. uh, We'll have people at the Respond Banner that would love to talk with you and pray with you, but just confess what you're convicted of because there is a limitless amount of grace and forgiveness for you. And Christ is inviting you to turn towards him in the way of sacrificial love. I think there are others and the invitation tonight is to keep living into imitating God as dearly loved children. As we go to communion, there are men and women in this room who God wants to use you to speak life into. And so I want to invite you, as you go to communion, will you take a moment and ask God, say, God, will you show me who is the person in this room that you want me to encourage? Who's the person in this room that you want me to build up and pray for? And then when he puts a person on your heart, man, go with courage and with love and compassion to that person and speak truth and life over them. And finally, I know there's probably some in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus. And man, I'm just telling you, This life with God through Christ is amazing. It is not a burden. It is beautiful. It is freeing. It is life-giving. And it brings you into a family where you find support like you never knew it was possible. And you can have that. Like, it's an open invitation to you. If you'll put your faith in Jesus and say, He is the Lord, and I need Him as my Savior, and I want to follow Him. You can have that tonight. I would love to introduce you to Jesus if you don't know Him. And so this is the invitation. If you're convicted, let's just confess. If you're you're compelled to talk, let's use our words to build one another up. Let's go to communion together. Let's worship together. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go get the cup. We're going to get the bread. And we're going to let the Spirit work amongst us to bring unity in His Spirit and His family. Let's pray. Father God, I praise you and I thank you just for who you are, Lord. Thank you for the invitation you've given us as your kids to follow you, to walk in the way of sacrificial love. Jesus, thank you for the beautiful model you gave us of laying down your life, 
that you gave, I mean, you gave so limitlessly and you continue to give. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit tonight? Would you remind us that the orientation of our hearts is not to be around us and what we can get. Would you remind us that you are calling us to give as you gave and that there is joy to be found in giving. And Lord, I praise you that you are a God of grace. Thank you, Lord, for the grace you've had with me as I've walked through this text and you've convicted me. Thank you for the grace that you have with me when I use my words in a, in a negative way with my family, with my wife, with my kids. When I use my words to talk poorly about others, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace, Lord, when I allow my mind to entertain impure thoughts about a sister in Christ or a woman. Lord, thank you for being so gracious. Lord, would you come and would you create that a community of Christ amongst us, completely bent on imitating you and living lives that are bent on giving as you gave. Come, Lord, come. Minister to us through your spirit as we commune and as we worship and as we pray. We invite you in the name of Christ, amen.